I'm Austin. I'm Mike. We are the test drivers. And we put tech through its paces. And oh boy, was Hell Week real, my friends. Austin, we <sighs> we theorized it uh, and it happened. So, you know, Hell Week is a week of exciting technology. So many things have happened in the past week. I think it was basically everything we thought would happen. So, you know, oh, we yeah. knew the next-gen consoles were coming out. We're going to talk about those. We knew that we were, the iPhones were coming out. We're going to talk about those. And we expected that there would be an Apple event, which there was. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later on in this episode as well. Uh, but I actually think we need to start out with a correction to last week's show because we got quite a lot of follow-up about something (laughs) that you said. So here was the situation. Uh, We were talking about the uh, AMD graphics cards, and I asked you, would there be a Mm. benefit to me going with an AMD CPU and AMD graphics card? And the reason I asked this was because I assumed there would be and thought I'd read something that suggested there would be, but you told me, nah, man, don't worry about it. And I was like, okay. And then uh, the entire Test Drivers audience got in touch to say that you were wrong. Can you talk about how and why you were wrong, please? Mm, Okay. So uh, first of all, apologies to everyone. And thank you very much for making it very clear to us, specifically (laughs) me, that I was very wrong. Everyone was super nice. But it was (laughs) one of those things where every now and then in in a podcast or in a video, you do you say something wrong and you know you've done it and then people nope. correct you and that they're, they're being great in the correction but the correction keeps coming for like two weeks <laughs> you keep getting the correction right as people are getting yes. to the episode on their own time so it was like this continuous wave of of uh corrections for for you okay so here, here here's here's where i went wrong right so there actually typically aren't any major advantages so cpus and gpus are fairly agnostic typically speaking However, specifically with the Ryzen 5000 series of CPUs, is specifically you actually have to have, I believe it's an X570 or a B550 motherboard, so some of the higher-end boards. And if you buy the Radeon RX 6000 series, there is a feature called Smart Access Memory. Now, this will, in theory, give you up to an 11% performance upgrade. Essentially what it does, that allows the processor to pull from the VRAM of the GPU directly over PCI 4.0. It removes some of the bottleneck of the CPU having to fetch stuff back and forth. We'll have to obviously see how much of a difference that makes. The 11% number sounds pretty ambitious, but that would be an advantage of using AMD and AMD that I definitely missed last episode. So I apologize for leading everyone astray. Uh, My bad. So would there be... So here's my thing, right? So I've, I keep talking about this, but I'm keeping my eye on graphics card stock, right? That's what I'm yeah. keeping my eye on. And I'm starting there. So I guess if I can get one of the AMD graphics cards, I might as well, I guess. There's mm-hmm. no benchmarks yet. As of the time of recording this, there's no benchmarks, right? I haven't yes. seen any. So I will say that we are close at hand, maybe even by the time this episode goes live. Um, some of that stuff is, it, it's close. Um, I will say that I plan on giving the new graphics cards a shot in my new personal rig. So very shortly when this episode goes live, I will be, in fact, probably working on it as it, as we speak, but, um, I'm updating my own personal rig with, um, with Ryzen 5000 and with the RX 6000 of Radeon cards. So 
stay tuned. But I, at the moment, feel pretty confident that these cards, they look great. And I think that they'll be, you you shouldn't be disappointed is uh, what I would say at the moment. All right. So I'm hoping, what I'm hoping is I can actually get an AMD graphics card because I have thoroughly failed to get <sighs> the NVIDIA card that I want, which is the Founders Edition. Yeah, I I don't honestly don't know what the stock situation is going to be. Yep. I very much expect it's going to sell out, and I think it's going to be hard to get your hands on. Yeah, it might be a little bit better than Nvidia. I don't know. I mean, typically it does seem like there's more hype behind Nvidia. Just sort of like people just sort of default to picking up that you know new RTX card. But I honestly have no idea. And we're we're not too far away, right? I mean, it's only a few days from from now. The the cards will actually start to go on sale. Of course, the 6800 and the 6800 XT will go live first. And the 6900 XT, which is uh, a little bit probably more of a dubious upgrade since it's a lot more expensive for not a ton more performance, will be going live a little bit later. But that being said, there's clearly a lot of hype. I'm I'm going like with my preferred purchases, very middle of the pack. That's what I want to go for. Yeah. Because I don't need or want the bleeding edge and what i buy i would like to use for a while right so i'm trying to go mm-hmm. like middle of the road dude i think you would be so happy with a 3080 or something like the 6800 xt like that's really this sweet spot when you look at price to performance with these things there's a lot that you're getting and i think when you go up to the 6900 xt or the 3090 it becomes very quickly like oh you're paying tons more money for a little bump of performance like if you want to have the sort of the i have the best gaming pc i'm linus tech tip sebastian approach then Mm -hmm. by all means go for it but i think most rational people will be perfectly happy with the 3080 or the 6800 xt or even one step below like a 3070 or 6800 like these are all very very powerful pieces of hardware this isn't the best transition because uh, I don't really know how powerful this hardware is, but I've seen a bunch of videos and articles about the Razer book. Yeah. So this is what Razer's attempts to make a regular laptop, right? Like a professional's creative's laptop, not focused around gaming. Yes, this is the first non-gaming Razer laptop, which... To be fair, the original version of the Razorblade Stealth wasn't really a gaming laptop either. It sort of it had Thunderbolt, but it was. But they positioned it as such, though, right? Like even exactly. though it maybe wasn't spec the the way that you would necessarily want for that. Yeah, so we've got one in the office. To be fair, we have a pre-production sample which has a number of, I mean, pre-production issues. Specifically, we can't benchmark it or anything because it just simply is not up to full speed. But the time that we spent with it, I'm actually impressed. Right, so. It's very much in this sort of mold of a Razorblade Stealth. So it's a 13-inch laptop. It's a little different. Uh, the hardware is completely different as far as it's a 16 by 10 aspect ratio. It is a sort of slimmer chassis. I believe it's about a 10% smaller chassis overall. They've kind of slimmed up the bezel specifically. Um, and it also has like an interesting port selection, right? So even though this is a non-gaming laptop, it's meant more for like productivity, you have a couple of USB-C-based Thunderbolt 4 ports. You have full-size USB-A and full-size HDMI, which is something that I am very happy to see. Hmm. That's, not, that's, not, that's not common, especially on these kind of like quote-unquote thin and light laptops. Now, that being said, it is still a bit of a chunky sort of laptop, right? So it's about the same thickness of a Razorblade Stealth, give or take a little bit. It is certainly a little bit more squared off, and it's it's just bigger than most, like, XPS 13s of the world. But that being said, you have good battery life. They coded it at 14 hours. I can't really comment on it since our pre-production sample just is 
early and rough. So we'll have a final. 14 is the claim. Mm. I mean, in my personal experience, I struggle with getting the claimed battery life from a Razer laptop. Sure. Like, you know, like my blade does not do what they say it does. With normal usage. I mean, you know, you can do a lot of things to make the battery run. 14 yeah. is quite, that's quite, it doesn't look like a big laptop. I, I, I can't, um, yeah, that would surprise me. That would surprise me. It sounds ambitious, but there are a couple of reasons why I think it at least should be a big step up over the Razer Blade Stealth. So this does not have a dedicated graphics card. So this is using the Intel XE graphics, which it's to be fair, I mean, it's the 11th gen. I know that obviously the Intel stuff has gotten better, specifically 10th and 11th gen are very power sipping. And it is part of the, it used to be called Project Athena, but essentially it's their new kind of Evo program to optimize the laptops, et cetera, et cetera. But there are definitely certain things going for it. It also does have a decent amount of power. So even though it's not a gaming laptop per se, those XE graphics actually are equivalent to like a two-year-old Blade Stealth anyway, right? So when you look at like the dedicated GPU, so it's enough to play, I would say, the vast majority of games out there, at least on low settings, which is nice. And you don't have the battery life penalty of carrying around, you know, a secondary NVIDIA GPU built in. So there's a lot that I like about it, but the main issue is it's expensive, right? So it's a little bit cheaper than the Blade Stealth, but not by a lot. So it starts out at $1,200, which is fine. But they get you an i5, they get you like 8 gigs of RAM, 256, but you don't have a touchscreen, right? If you want to upgrade to the next tier up, it's a full $1,600. And... Uh, it's good, right? I mean, you get the i7 and you get the touchscreen and more RAM and more storage and everything, but it's a little bit, uh, I mean, for not that much more, you can get a Blade Stealth with that dedicated GPU and with a 120 hertz display, which this just simply doesn't have as an option. Okay. This looks like a, a, a nice option for someone who wants a Apple quality hardware solution mm. for a windows machine because that's what i like about razor their, their, their hardware is, is very well it's very well made and if you're not looking for a gaming laptop right if i take gaming out of the equation which i mean to be honest on my laptop on my ipad or whatever the portable device i'm carrying i'm not really a big gamer right i'm not going to be playing a lot of games on my sort of work you know portable laptop and when you take the gaming side out of the equation the razor book is a much better laptop yeah. smaller it has actually a better keyboard. It has per-key RGB backlighting. So I know that the Razer Blade has just like the single zone. So that's kind of nice. You also do have a 16 by 10 aspect ratio and those really thin bezels, which is great. You still have the Windows Hello facial recognition. It looks fantastic. Like with the full screen on the, the... Like it looks really good. Yeah, absolutely. And again, pre-production, so don't take it too seriously. But the battery life has been good. Um, keyboard is classic razor it feels nice our trackpad's a little bit the finish on our trackpad's not final so again it's like it's hard to say too much about what we have here in the studio at the moment but i actually could see a scenario in which i don't know if there was no exciting macbook on the horizon mm. <clears throat> that mm. the razor book would be absolutely my daily but um there's a couple other things that might be a touch more interesting coming up soon oh intre- okay all right. Well, I'm sure it's going to get the test driver's treatment, whatever it is. <laughs> oh, you better believe it. This episode is brought to you in part by SyncUp, a OneDrive podcast. I love finding new shows to listen to. 
new podcasts for my commute, new podcasts for when I'm washing dishes, and I'm sure you do too. If you're looking for something new to check out, SyncUp takes you behind the scenes of OneDrive so you can learn more about how to connect files, share your documents and work from anywhere, which is something becoming more and more important these days. Every episode covers a dedicated topic with guest interviews, news and announcements, and a special topic outside of the technology norm to keep things fun and interesting. So just so you have an idea of what to expect, some stuff that they've been talking about recently is how to look at uh, empowering Mac users for changing management and product adoption with file sharing, how to set up personal vaults, and so much more. And an episode that I just checked out was covering some of the new features announced at Microsoft's Ignite event, especially some of those new features coming to their iOS apps, which sound really great. So go and check it out today. Just search for SyncUp wherever you find your podcasts. That's S-Y-N-C-U-P, or you can just click the link in the show notes and go check it out. Our thanks to SyncUp and Microsoft for their support of this show and all of FM. Next-gen consoles are finally here, asterisk kind of, oh. depending on where you live, but at least like, most of the world oh. can get a console. Can I start by talking about my experiences with the Series S? Please do. Because I finally have a, a next-gen console. Um, it has, unfortunately, been hell week. So I think cumulatively, <laughs> cumulatively, I've maybe played like for two and a bit hours on the console so far. Um, the thing that I really wanted to focus on, actually, is how seamless and fantastic the console setup is yeah, for the Series yeah. S. So they encourage you to download their iPhone app or their Android app, which I did. And then I set up the entire thing on my phone and the console was just doing its thing. It was super seamless, really smooth. Uh, I didn't have to like, you know, I have like complicated passwords or whatever, and I could use my password manager on my phone to just copy it in, which would have been, you know, I always dread setting up consoles and stuff like these days when I'm thinking, oh, am I going to have to like take 20 <laughs> tries at getting this 17 character password, you know, like into, into the device or using a controller. It's like, I love that I could do all of that really easily. Um, yeah, it was, it was fantastic. And just as a way to just first run of consoles always feels like a nightmare, but this was super seamless. I thought it was really great. Um, I've played a couple of games so far. I've I've spent a little bit of time in Forza Horizon because it just seems to be the game I always play <laughs> when trying out anything Xbox related. It's such a good game. Horizon 4 is so good. It's really good. And I thought, because one thing I found tricky is trying to work out which games actually make the most of the next generation improvements. Mm -hmm. Because everything kind of just says like, optimized for series x and s i'm like what does that mean though and also i can i can never remember what features i actually get from the s like i can mm -hmm. i know i don't get 4k right but i get sometimes higher than 1080p i know i can get 120 right frames per second mm-hmm and that's kind of, I, 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 I do struggle to get my head around. It doesn't matter how many videos of yours I watch. I can never remember <laughs> exactly what I get out of this. But the, the, me getting this console anyway was to, uh, it was really kind of just like on a lock, right? Like it was cheap enough. I already pay for Games Pass. I may as well have something. And I'm going to put this in my studio with my old TV. Like I have a, uh, like a early gener early 4K TV. So like it's not very good. It's like an... Um, the one that uh, you plugged your Spider-Man PS4 into? 
Yes, the one that I plugged the P- the, the, the Spider-Man PS4 into the wrong HDMI <laughs> port. Uh, at least the new TV, all of them do 120, right? So they're all HDMI 2.1. Like I have three uh, HDMI ports and they're all 2.1. Nice. Um, this new TV as well, the LG one that I got, what I, what I really love about that TV is it recognizes what's plugged in and names the inputs itself. Yeah. When it did that, it's such a, such a small thing, but it's like, oh my God, I love that so much they're not just hdmi one two and three anymore because i'm too lazy to name them but like even when i unplugged my playstation and plugged in the xbox it changed the name yeah yeah no look look uh, web os has come a long way on these lg tvs and i do think lg has generally speaking had some of the better support for these consoles so we have not only the nano cell in the office which we did a video on but also we have a couple of the oleds at home and you know at the office and stuff and i've had pretty much flawless support across the board um, I know that um, Matt here, uh, he's had some issues sort of getting his, the Series X up and running with his. Like he had hmm. three different firmware updates on his TV in like literally 10 days as sort of the HDMI 2.1 stuff was propagating out. But regardless, I've been pretty happy with the way that the rollout has been. And Mike, can I just say how happy I am to be with you on a show with zero PS5 Series X embargoes of any kind? I feel like a weight has been lifted. You are free, There's no my secrets. Friend. Oh, it's out. People have them in their hands. I've been like, it's been like, I've had to second guess every word I've said about these consoles for I feel like nine months at this point. It is so nice that they're out. Everyone's enjoying them. All is right with the world. Unless you can't get a PS5. I'm sorry. Yeah, man. Bots and stuff, it's just making Oof. everything terrible for everyone now. Like, you can't ah. buy anything anymore. Like, yeah. bots are a thing in mechanical keyboard buying. Mm-hmm. They're everywhere. It's, it's terrible. Anyway, so I've played uh, some of Forza. I've played some of the new Assassin's Creed game as well, which looks I mean, it looks great. It's, it's fun. I, I want to play more of it. Uh, what sold me on it was I saw somebody say it's kind of, it's got some like Breath of the Wild vibes. And I was like, mm-hmm. all right. And I got it immediately. <laughs> um, the Xbox UI, I like. Uh, I really like oh, the really? quick, the kind of, I don't know what they call it, but the quick menu when you're like, you press X and you can mm-hmm. jump into different games. The quick resume stuff is very cool. Uh, yes. But also that UI is just really nice. Um, there is a bit of complication, I think. For the fact that Game Pass and the store are different things. Mm. I would have liked to have seen them integrate that a bit better. And I know they do they do a good job of telling you if a game that you're looking at in, a, in the store is available for Game Pass, like right. if it's included. Mm-hmm. But the fact that I have to like think about going to two different places... It's, it's just it's just kind of strange to me. Uh, I would love to have seen them integrate that a bit more, especially considering like the store has all kinds of stuff in it. Like I can buy TV shows for some reason. I don't know why I would do that on my Xbox, but I could do that if I want to. But yeah, the and you know everything else about it, you know, right? Like it's super small. Um, it it looks great. The controller's really nice. I've always liked the Xbox controller, um, but ultimately. I'm most looking forward to getting my PlayStation next week. Uh, oh, man. Sp- Spider-Man, I bought I bought it on Amazon because mm-hmm. I wanted to have one game on a disc uh, while I'm waiting for other stuff to download, right? The, ga- the disc is here. Like, it's like torture because <laughs> the console just doesn't come out in the UK until the 19th. 
I don't get that. I think it was a. I think they only. I think it was like a availability thing. That, that's ah. the only only logical reason I can assume this. Or they had some kind of issue with approvals in Europe. I don't know. Um, but the games are shipping now. Oh my god! Right. So I just have. I have Spider Man Mars Morales. I have it now. It's at home, and I just look at it. I just imagine. You're just sitting at home, surrounded in a pile of Amazon boxes with like PS5 controllers and headsets <laughs> and games. You're just like, where's my console? <laughs> oh, I do realize I only ordered, I, I didn't order an extra DualSense. Oh, you should probably grab one. That was a bad idea. That was a mistake. Because I, if I'm going to want one, it's going to take a while. I actually don't think they've sold out. I've actually seen, uh, the other day, I actually saw a couple of DualSense still at the store. So you might be all right. I think it's the consoles that are really constrained. Oh, my God. Austin, I could order it and have it in two days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, you're fine. You're fine. But it's so annoying, though, because what am I going to do? Just sit there with the, with the controller? <laughs> yes. You'll just, you'll just tear it apart like I did and uh, make some clickbait video. It'll be fine. <laughs> all right, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the fact that you obliterated a PlayStation 5. Okay, how dare you libel me like that? I will have you know that that PS5 has been put back together. It works flawlessly. I don't know what you're talking right, about. Two it was questions. A... One, okay. it legit works, right? 100%. 100%. Uh, on what grounds can you say flawlessly, though? Like, do you, how would you know? It is cool. It is quiet. I have right. had no issues whatsoever. The whole thing's been pulled back together. It is as good as new, as long as you don't mind that there's like three screws that I couldn't find where they're supposed to go back in, and there's a little bit of a scratch oh. on the inside, which is covered up by the, the front panel. No one would ever know from the outside. It's, it's, it's beautiful, Mike. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm. So, yes, I definitely did get a PS5, take it out of the box, and short of plugging it in to see that it would turn on for two seconds, immediately tear it completely down to the liquid metal foundation. Yes, it's a great video. People need to go watch it. I'll put it in the notes. Oh, thank you. Thank uh, how you. How nervous were you taking this thing apart? Honestly, I can't believe I'm about to say this. It wasn't so bad. There are a lot of screws in the PS5, yeah. but there's nothing about taking apart this console, which is actually particularly difficult, right? It just okay. takes a lot of time. Like some of the like the heat sink, specifically the rear shield behind the motherboard, I swear there's like 35 screws holding it in, which seems yeah. wildly unnecessary. But short of like unplugging a few ribbon cables, a few little connectors here and there, um, like we're actually removing the heatsink from the board. There's nothing, once you unscrew it, there's nothing holding it in besides just incredibly sticky thermal like pads that are on the like the VRM and everything. But like it actually wasn't so bad. I was a little concerned about the liquid metal side of things because based on how you do liquid metal, it's very easy to get that all over the place. And, you know, it, it can cause huge problems because any of that little liquid metal goes across the board you're probably going to start shorting things out. But taking it apart, and I will say not the most careful way in hindsight, it was completely fine. It even went back together completely fine. It's as if nothing ever happened. I will give them huge props. The PS5 is, I don't know, I mean, we may have like some iFixit score by the time the, the show goes live, but I actually think the PS5 is relatively easy to work on, which is not what I expected to say at all going into it. I mean, it makes sense from Sony's perspective, right? First runs of consoles always have some kind of problem. There doesn't mm. seem to have been anything so far that seems to have caused significant issues. There was some clickbait of them 
apparently catching on fire the series x but that was uh <laughs> the vape yeah the vape that that was a complete lie um but it seems like the launch has gone pretty well so far hardware wise but it's never usually with consoles it tends to be the big problems come later right yes like, you know like the red ring of death or whatever mm-hmm yeah, like, my main concern would be that liquid metal. Like, before going into this, yeah, I was... Yeah, what is the deal with this? Like, why is... I feel like I don't understand why liquid metal would be helpful. Like, how... what They're using it for cooling? Yeah, yeah. So, essentially, anytime you have a, a processor or a GPU or whatever, you always have to have some kind of thermal interface material between yeah. the chip and the, the heat sink, right? Typically, you use... Usually, like, a paste or whatever, right? Exactly. Yeah. The thing is, uh, thermal paste, and they're different kinds, but thermal paste does a good job. But if you want to get the maximum performance out of it, something like liquid metal does a significantly better job of just transferring the heat off of the chip and onto the heat sink, right? It's a, it's a much better material. The problem is, is that what makes liquid metal sort of interesting, and actually, you know, I should know this. I actually don't know what kind of metal it is. I don't know if it's like gallium or something. I have no idea what kind of metal it is, but it's a type of metal that is essentially, it's sort of, it's liquid at room temperature, right? Today I learned liquid metal was not a specific thing. No, it's... Right? Well, it's, it's, it is a liquid version of a metal that they've chosen. Just in my mind, yeah. it's kind of like, oh, that's liquid metal. We all know what that is. It's the metal that's liquid. <laughs> Duh. Right? <laughs> I've actually never thought about it. I actually don't know, yeah, like what kind of metal it is. Or I assume that it's you can get different kinds from different things. I've actually never thought about the brand of it. But regardless, I mean, you can touch it. I mean, it's literally like liquid, you know? I mean, you, you can kind of it. move it around. As I took it apart, so there's a little foam like border around the the chip on the PS5, which keeps it from going everywhere. As I sort of detached it for the first time, a little bit of the metal did kind of go off to the side, but it got completely stopped by that foam little pad. So I think it's probably going to be fine long term. Obviously, I mean, look, I'm not going to lie. I definitely thought about putting taking all that the liquid metal off, putting thermal paste on, and trying to do a side by side with the PS5. With like that had been completely unmodified, but then I quickly realized that that would be an absolute nightmare to try to test to see what the differences are. Since unlike a PC, I can't check temperatures or anything like mm. that. So you know, maybe a video for another time. But yeah. I'm sure that Sony are using that for a reason, even if it gives them another five percent, you know, performance improvement and you know heat dissipation or whatever the case is. It feels like the trickiest of the potential options. So. You've got to assume that for them to want to have gone this route, there must be a good reason for it. Yes, because yeah, I it would be so much it. easier if you just used some kind of cooler and a li- and liquid uh, and uh, thermal paste. Like, yeah, and alternatively, they could have gone with what Microsoft has done for the Xbox One X and the Series X, which is go for a vapor chamber. That's yeah. become uh, it's obviously a more expensive solution since it's a more complicated piece to machine. There's obviously a little bit of liquid inside that. Well, the vapor chamber, as the name implies. But I would assume that they were able to run the numbers and think, oh, OK, we're going to spend seven dollars on the vapor chamber versus two dollars on the heat sink and the liquid metal. I'm probably way off on the actual number there, but mm-hmm. I, I'm sure they ran the numbers. They consider their performance targets. And they figured that that would be the best optimum solution. It's unique, though, because I can't think of another mainstream consumer electronics that has had liquid metal in mm. the cooling apparatus. I know mm. that there were, back in the mid-2000s, there were a couple of, like, enthusiast GPU options that had liquid metal, like, already installed. And, of course, if you subscribe to Quinn or to Linus, you know that they've done a million liquid metal, like, 
MacBook and, you know, yeah. various different sort of overclocking challenges and whatnot, which is great. But as far as like buying a standard piece of consumer tech, I believe this is one of the first applications of liquid metal. And I'm really curious to see how it sort of ages long term. Having ripped both of these things apart now, you know, you know, like you've had the opportunity to take both machines apart. And I think there's been many people that have been able to do that. Uh, which insides do you find more impressive? PlayStation or Xbox? I think the Xbox is more technically impressive. The thing is, the PS5, that is a, short of the liquid metal, which is which is exciting, it's an evolution of standard console design, right? It's right. not wildly different than the way that the PS4 or even the PS3 was designed, right? I mean, it's like, it's almost, it's, it has a lot more in common as opposed to like a gaming PC. It actually has more in common with something like a gaming laptop right. and that it's a very dense sort of surface area. You've got like your main motherboard. You've got a huge heatsink. I will say the PS5 heatsink is massive and heavy. There's even a little like secondary heatsink on the backside to cool. It kind of looks like the console is that big so they could put the heatsink in there. Oh, 100 percent right yeah like it looks like that's the reason it is that size which is such an interesting thought yeah whereas there's nothing wrong with that but when you look at what they've done on the series x it's a way more complicated design right having two boards by itself adds so much complication having that sort of like mid chassis that little mid plate that sort of bridges the two together not only is that a huge heatsink big and heavy and i'm sure expensive but on top of all of that, then you're also bolting on a vapor chamber to it. That, I have no doubt, is a significantly more expensive proposition to put together. Now, ultimately, you can sort of judge however you want. I mean, the Series X seems like a smaller console in a lot of dimensions, but it's a little bit more of a squared-off kind of shape, whereas the PS5 is this very long, very sort of tall chassis. I personally think it's a lot easier to fit the Xbox into places. For my personal home setup, it was like my TV. I can't fit either of the consoles in. I have to put them beside the TV on the top. Like neither of them will actually fit in the little place that the, you know, the PS4 Pro or the Series S or the One X all fit in no problem. So I think there's an argument. And certainly if I was on the Microsoft tech team, there's an argument to be made that all the money that you spent making this console so small and so ultimately... I don't say quote unquote portable, but everything that they did for the engineering ultimately didn't make it that much smaller. But I don't work for Microsoft and I'm not on the Xbox team trying to, you know, be the number cruncher on trying to making money on these consoles. I'm a person who likes to use both of these. And I will say that the Xbox has a more interesting design. It's a more technically advanced design and also is in most people's scenario, a easier console to fit wherever it actually ends up. So I like the Series X, but the PS5 is a more simple design that clearly works very well because both of these consoles are whisper quiet and run relatively cool, even in slightly more sort of challenging uh, environments that maybe might not have the cleanest airflow. Hmm. What are your thoughts on actually using a PlayStation 5, though? Because this is your first actual use of one, right? Yes, so this is the first time I've been able to play the PS5 with the controller, with the games, everything working as intended. I am very impressed with the PS5. Very impressed with the PS5. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I mean, so first of all, I will say that the Xbox interface is essentially the same as the Xbox One. In fact, the what the Series S and X are running 
it's pretty much just already been brought out to the Xbox One, right? So there's right. not a lot of advantage there. There's certainly features that I miss coming from Xbox to PlayStation. Quick resume, hands down the most important one. It feels like a little old school in some ways when I'm on the PS5 and I want to launch a second game and I have to wait for that game to quit and load again. But that's so much faster than last gen that unless you are literally, you have a Series X in your house and you switch over to the PS5, you're never going to notice it. Quick resume seems like a feature Sony's going to going to try and implement it seems because it seems logical <sighs> once you know it exists right but like i could imagine them trying to either want to maybe do it for a later one or see if there's a way that they can have some kind of similar feature as soon as possible i i'm sure if they could do it they would but i actually am not convinced that that's something that they could easily implement because mm -hmm. the way that the xbox one and the series x have always been designed from an os perspective it's not really just like one operating system, right? They have a hypervisor and then they have everything like one level below, right? So you have like the interface, the game, like it all kind of almost runs sort of siloed. And right, the way I right. understand is that they're able to essentially hibernate a game, load it straight to the SSD, and then they can bring it back in and sort of like sort of, I don't know, revive it or however, I'm sure there's a much more technical phrase, but they can bring those games up and down in a way that the the architecture from the very beginning has very much kind of made that possible. I don't know a lot of the details of the back end of specifically the software and how that's been implemented on the PS5. My impression, though, is that that would be a very difficult feature for them to copy. But you, uh, you're into the controller and stuff? Oh, my God. Okay, Mike. So, look, I've talked a lot about PS5 this year, right? I've done videos on the controller. I've done multiple videos on the controller. But the thing that I've been missing this whole time is not so much the, the hardware or sort of how it looks or blah, 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 the specs. It's really the experience. And I will say, without any shadow of a doubt, the DualSense controller is my favorite feature of the next generation of gaming period, Right? It's not the ray tracing, it's not the SSDs, it's not the higher fidelity graphics. The DualSense controller is completely and totally game-changing. <laughs> I come from a background where I have traditionally liked the Xbox One controller over the PS4, right? I liked the 360 more than the PS3 controller, I like the Xbox One controller more than the PS4, right? The DualSense is, first of all, a good controller just straight up, right? It's bigger, feels much more comfortable. It's got a nice grip, obviously has not only USB-C, but a built-in battery, something that mm. I wish the Xbox team would ship. But all of that is so secondary to the immersion of the DualSense. This is something that I have talked about, and I have a video that should be probably live by the time the, this episode is live, which I will be going much more in depth on. There's a lot that I can talk about and show in a podcast or in a video or whatever, but nothing will replace the experience of you holding the DualSense and experiencing it because it does so much to bring you into the game. So Mike, when your PS5 shows up, very first thing you should do, launch Astro's Playroom. Okay, because that's basically like the... PlayStation have always, not always, but they've very frequently had these uh, game experiences that they've created which are purely to sell you on mm -hmm. the technology. Yep. You know, like they did it with PSVR, they create stuff, you know, I've I've known them to do this kind of stuff in the past. And it feels like Astro's Playroom is what they've done here, right? Do you remember the first time you played Wii Sports? Yeah. That's what Astro's Playroom feels like to me. Okay. I'm into it. I mean, I it, you were saying something I've had a bunch of people tell me, right? Which is this exact thing. Like, you gotta play Astro's Playroom. So 
Astro's Playroom is half controller demo, half actually pretty fun little like game, like platforming mm-hmm. style game. Mm-hmm. There are a few things that it does a really good job of showing. So as, as soon as you launch it, it will run you through a little controller demo, right? Which is literally designed to make you go, oh, holy sh- that's amazing. So there are a few elements of the controller that really feel next level, right? First of all is the vibration. So hmm. other consoles, of course, have had this. I mean, even the, the Switch has HD rumble, which is, is pretty good. But this is totally next level because essentially what it gives you is almost like a full 3D sort of map of vibration on the controller. So I can feel, for example, when you're playing Demon Souls, right? Every time you take a step, I feel left foot, right foot on the controller, right? So I feel wow. the left side, the right side vibrate. And one of the great demos inside Astro's Playroom is that they actually, like, it fills up with a bunch of little, like, Astrobots, and you start shaking the controller around. And I swear, if you close your eyes, you can absolutely imagine a bunch of these little dudes trying to get out of the controller, right? Like, it, it uh. as you shake it from side to side and back and forth, it absolutely feels like you're holding a box with a bunch of little, like, things inside it. it is- Let me ask you, though, about the, like, the left foot, right foot thing. That mm-hmm. feels like it would be too much. Is it immersive enough that it feels natural? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I... Very quickly forgot about it. It's literally like that first huh. like opening 10 seconds where you're like one step, one step, one step. And you're like, oh, I can feel this. And then you almost immediately ignore it. But it's like something that like it gives you that extra level of immersion. I don't know if you've ever tried. Like there are some things like I know in the racing sim community, I think there's this thing called like the butt kicker, which is literally like it's like it, I think it attaches to like the sub of the the audio of the game. But essentially just will vibrate your seat during like sort of like, you know, when you drive over a, a rumble strip on the track or whatever. Stuff like that has always been interesting and like force feedback and whatnot. But having like that full, I keep calling it like 3D. I don't think that's necessarily the right phrase. But like having that full presence in the controller, it really is something special. But that's only part of it, right? Because there's also the triggers. So the triggers, we have seen a very early version of this last generation with the Xbox One with the impulse triggers which were, like, especially you play like Forza or something, you know, you can kind of feel like the triggers will vibrate a little bit if, you know, you, you lock your brakes in Forza or, you know, you start spinning the tires or whatever. You get a little bit of that sensation. But the PS5 takes that to a completely different level. So, first of all, the controllers, specifically the triggers, are actually, like, they have software-based like feedback. So, a good example is if you're playing, like, Call of Duty or something, Right. Instead of just being a linear push, they can actually, in software, program in, like, halfway down, you have a click, right? So you kind of have to, like, you have a lot of pressure, and then you'll hit it almost like how it feels like when you press, like, a mechanical keyboard, right? When you feel that mm-hmm. sort of, like, pressure, 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 and then all of a sudden it impacts, and all of a sudden, it, you know, you, you feel the click, right? You can get that, and it's completely customizable, so a game like Dirt 5, the right side, so my, my throttle, was way, way stiffer than my brake, which, to be fair, is probably the opposite of the way it actually should be. But still, like, it is wild to feel not only the feedback, but how different things can be. In Astro's Playroom, there's a, a demo that where essentially you're a spring. So essentially, you kind of, like, you hold down the right trigger, use the left stick to kind of, like, lean like back and forth, and you let go. The way that that feels, you can absolutely, when you're playing that game, you feel like you're compressing a spring and you're releasing it, right? It is wild, man. It is wild. I am very intrigued. Like, I'm I'm very intrigued to try this this, uh, controller stuff out because it really does feel like Sony have had a very smart idea in understanding that 
potentially what it is to be next generation is to rethink more than just the hardware of the game's console itself and the games. Mm-hmm. Like you can, you know, Sony have tried, I think, quite a few times over the last few years to add things to the controller. Like when they added that little touchpad and, mm-hmm. you know, pretty much the only game I think I ever tried that used it was Uncharted 3 or whatever. And it just, sucked like it just wasn't <laughs> what i wanted you know or like they when they put the touchpad on the vita you know yeah. like it seems like they've always tried to find ways to um extend the gameplay that way or like the six axis controller um but it kind of sounds like this is maybe the first time that they've really landed on something that that works that does what they're trying to achieve yeah, and there's other stuff. So, like, those are, like, the big headline features. But then you have things like the speaker, right? It's, yeah. I've actually seen, like, pretty good use on a few of the games, like Astro's Playroom, of course. But even, again, like something like Demon's Souls, right? Or, or Spider-Man is another example of a game that actually doesn't take great advantage of the controller generally. Like, you very quickly can just imagine you're playing on a DualShock. I mean, it doesn't really do a lot of the craziness. But that being said, I mean, even like having that audio there, having the motion sensing, right, of being able to kind of tilt the controller back and forth. There are a lot of things that are nice. Of course, you have the microphone built in as well. But it feels like the most complete controller to me. And it really does, it pushes this next gen in a way that I wasn't expecting. Because it's so easy to think about the the ray tracing. And, you know, so much of what I liked about the Xbox was that it felt like the Xbox 1.5 but mm. like in a good way, right? Like it was everything that was good about last generation, but so much faster, so much snappier with fewer barriers to entry and smoother, right? So instead of going for more pixels or whatever, you're going for smoother performance with, you know, improved uh, visuals like ray tracing. But it was so much more about like the games that you already enjoy looking better, running faster, being smoother, being easier to, to access, But on the PS5, it's a different story because you get all of those same features with, of course, a couple of minor exceptions like the lack of being able to use quicker zoom. But the controller brings you in so much more. It's really a trip, man. Like, I thought that would be good. I was expecting it to be kind of like, oh, okay, cool. Maybe this will be, you know, uh, neck and neck with the Xbox controller and you'll get a little bit more of a kind of a sensation of being in the game. But Spending time with it, and I mean, if you play through an hour of Astro's Playroom and you are not convinced by this controller, I don't know what to say. Because that, to me, was like, oh my god, this is my next-gen moment. This is what I felt like the first time I tried to go bowling in Wii Sports. It really was just like, wow. This episode of The Test Drivers is brought to you by MailRoute. Bad actors threaten your business with spam and viruses, and they're even more sophisticated in 2020. Email traffic has tripled as companies have increased the number of employees working from home on residential networks, and as administrators look to mitigate associated risks to their businesses, your biggest vulnerability is probably your email, and this is where MailRoute can help. When it comes to handling business email, there are a number of things that are vitally important. Security speed, uptime, and a streamlined workflow. Well, MailRoute solves all of these problems. MailRoute's team was the first to build an email filtering service back in 1997, and they've been focused exclusively on email security for 23 years. MailRoute is the only service to provide one-click sync with both Office 365 and G Suite for simple and safe migration. Their API-level integration ports your data from 365 directly into MailRoute, so there is no need to duplicate your workload to activate 
violate this protection, and they also meet federal compliance standards, including NIST 800-171 for Department of Defense contractors. I'm sure that's very important to you, if you know what that means. I don't know what that means. Admins enjoy real-time log searches and real-time reporting in their custom dashboard, and your dashboard also includes granular controls to stop spam and phishing attempts, plus viruses, ransomware, and malware. So, Try MailRoute today and get 10% off the lifetime of your account by going to MailRoute.net slash testdrivers. You can even get a 30-day free trial with no credit card required. Go to M-A-I-L-R-O-U-T-E dot net slash testdrivers to start protecting your business today. MailRoute, making email better. Our thanks to MailRoute for their support of this show and Relay FM. So, we both got the iPhones we wanted. Maybe you have a 12 mini. I have a 12 max. Uh, my 12 max arrived today. So you're very much going to be getting my first impressions on this. Hot off the press. Straight up. This is the most premium looking and feeling iPhone I have ever used. I think it is already like my favorite design. It's unbelievable. It's so beautiful. It's so nice to hold. This phone is massive, but that's what I wanted. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm into it big time. I got the gold one, and oh, nice. it is it looks great. Like when I look at the phone straight on, it just looks like my iPhone, right? But then when I catch it from the side a little bit, get some of that gold because I'm going caseless. Um, big time, love it. So you're committing to caseless? Yeah, I've been doing it with my uh, 11 Pro for ages now. So I have a pop socket on the back, which helps me a lot. Um, and that's what I'm going to go with. I love this phone feels much easier to hold because the surface area of the stainless steel sides is greater because it's flat. So for me, it feels easier to hold. Like I, I, it feels much more grippy because I'm able to grip more of it with my fingers and my, uh, my thumb. So it feels nicer to me to hold that way. Um, and I think it looks great. The camera module is awesome ginormous <laughs> i didn't realize until i actually gotten it in my hands that how much bigger it is than yeah. all of the other iphone 12 models because that was my first instinct when they were talking about like the the different telephoto and the bigger main sense i'm like wait a minute if that all fits in the same size why don't you put that on like at least the 12 pro but then when you see it in person you're like oh wait no this is just way bigger full stop yeah i think that was the thing that I don't really think anyone had a like a concept of that until the phone started arriving, right? It's like, oh no, this is actually it's not just a bigger sensor, it's actually a bigger camera module, which makes some sense, but I didn't really think about it. It does, yeah. Because I'm a PopSocket user, I don't use and can't use MagSafe because I stick the PopSocket to the back of the phone. Come on, that's not gonna last though, right? They've gotta have a MagSafe pop socket, right? Like pop socket is saying they're working on something, but I'm gonna wait wait until I see on that one. That just seems like such a no-brainer. My wife loves using her pop socket too. I'm just like, look, you can use an old pop socket, but like that seems like the perfect if the magnet is strong enough, if they can work out a way to make that work. That's like the dream for pop socket. It's gotta be, right? That, well, I mean, like like they've said, yeah, we're working on it, but they've said nothing and shown nothing more than saying yeah we're working on it hmm, so i don't know if they were kind of just like yeah we'll work it out and they have absolutely no plan and they're trying to work <laughs> it out um but i like it yeah it works fine for me and 
MagSafe seems cool, uh, but I already have like charging solutions. You know, I have like a dock mm-hmm. on my desk, a dock on my bedside that, that plugs in with lightning. So I'm not in any rush to move, but I will keep my eye on whatever PopSocket does and I will want to try it out um, just so I can, when I have to move to MagSafe, which I expect will happen one day, um, then I'll mm-hmm. be ready for it. Uh it's hard for me so far to to tell like performance differences and camera stuff. Um, I've tinkered around with the camera a little bit. Uh, I I can see a difference between the two, um, but I could see a difference between they're just in using my wife's twelve Pro a little bit because uh, she's mm-hmm. had that for a couple of weeks now, right? And I can see differences. I mean, I assume it's HDR three is what I'm seeing most. It's just like the colors of the images look a little different. Um, it's interesting to have the 2.5 zoom lens again like yeah. i need to see like am i gonna prefer that i don't know yet like to two am i gonna see much of a difference i don't know but like take photos side by side and i can see it um the selfie camera is so much better because it can use night mode now so indoor yeah. selfies are vastly superior um for quality and detail which i'm i love that i love that they're doing that um and that's you know i'm I'm sure you're going to see those across the entire line uh but it's something that i hadn't really uh played around with too much and again like you know echoing the stuff that i tried before i think night mode portraits are really cool um and i'm keen to see i I really want to play around with the pro raw that just came into the beta into 12.3 so I'm waiting to. I'm looking forward to when some apps support that, just to see again, like what can I really push this camera system to do. Um, but for me, like I'm excited about it because most of my images, especially at the moment, are indoors, and it seems like that's where the real benefits of mm. the 12 Pro Max are. It's it's indoor photography is where that sensor's really uh, gonna play, gonna, gonna like do its best stuff because it's it's for low light scenarios so yeah i i will report back on the camera if i have anything specific to say about it but for me you know i always want the biggest phone anyway so it's just a benefit if there's any change in camera performance yeah absolutely and i think that's the thing like apple didn't really overhype the difference between the 12 and the 12 pro and the 12 pro max cameras and i think that was for good reason because the differences can be subtle sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, with the bigger sensor, you do get better low-light performance. So the shutter speed might be a little bit quicker. You might not have to jump into to night mode quite so often. But you shouldn't expect huge jumps, right? And even, I think, coming from the 11 to the 12 generation, I would say it's a modest upgrade. It's certainly not anywhere near as big as the difference going from, like, the 10s to the 11, which I did thought, I really thought, felt like was, like, a huge revolutionary change. It was just so much better. Yeah. But, I'm really excited about the Mini Man. So I've had some time to spend with a review unit of the Mini this week. My actual, my personal Mini arrives today. It is it is good, right? So have you had a chance to put your hands on a Mini yet? I have not, no. It is a little bit smaller than I would personally like, but I am totally okay with it, right? So it does kind of fit sort of interestingly alongside something like the 4.7-inch iPhones like the SE2 and the 6 and that whole generation and the iPhone 5S. It To me, especially not having used the, the iPhone 5S and the, the original SE, like that kind of 4-inch iPhone in a long time, 
the second I picked up the mini, I'm like, oh, this feels familiar, right? The sides, I mean, even the way the antenna band is done, it feels so similar. Now, when you actually put it side by side, you realize, oh, okay, it's a little bit bigger. But it's the same thing when I was a kid and I thought that every house had 50-foot ceilings because I was three feet tall. You know, it's just like... <laughs> You know how it is. After some time apart, you get sort of fond memories of that PS1 game that you thought looked lifelike and you play now and you're like, oh, that's seven polygons. Cool. But the the Mini, I think, is... In fact, you actually, I'll take that back. Not even just the Mini. The iPhone 12 line this year is nicely weighted, right? So previously, I always thought it was a little awkward, the sizes that they offered. So you had the 11 Pro as well as, you know, obviously the the 10. But like you had the 11 Pro last year, which was kind of like the medium size. Then you had the 11, which was like medium plus. And then you had the 11 Pro Max, which was just big, right? To me, the differences between the three sizes were not that clear. It just felt like it was a little bit of an awkward thing. It almost felt like, because they had to deal with sort of splitting the line between OLED and LCD, that they were a little bit constrained and the sizes and the batteries that they had to run. But this time around, now that the entire iPhone 12 line are running OLED displays, I feel like there's a really good differentiation between the mini, the standard 12 and 12 Pro, and the Max, right? And it's nice to see real options, right? Because for so long, it's been like, you know, before you had the medium phone and the big phone, and then we had medium, medium plus big. But now we actually have legitimately three very different options that I think are going to appeal to different people. Because with the mini, I mean, that's my jam, man. I mean, look, I have said this before. I'm not getting rid of the Z Flip, right? Like, I'm, I'm not going to go pull a pixel on us again, I promise. But the mini feels immediately so much nicer to use for me personally compared to the 11 Pro that I was using before right? Like the, the size feels good. Just the portability of it, just the idea that I can hold it in one hand so comfortably, man, like there's, there's something real there. There's something real there. So, I mean, this is clearly like the, it's the iPhone for you, right? But it's not still not probably enough to be the phone for you. I like the Z flip too much. I mean, I will say so. I mean, I am what seven, eight months. How long have we had Z flips since what February, something like that? Uh, yeah, that seems about right. Yeah, I have found little areas where the dual phone life is fraying a bit. Um, specifically, and like I get calls on both phones, and sometimes oh, I'm boy. like, wait, where's this one? Where's that one? Right? Or I will say that like there are minor annoyances that I don't have on the iPhone. Like I love my Galaxy Buds. Uh, I love the little beans. I can't stand that half the time I try to watch a YouTube video that the sync is off and I have to like pair and repair oh, and like God, disconnect. No. Yeah, like like it's mm. one of those things that especially how good AirPods have gotten with their integration with iPad OS and Mac OS. Like there are little things where I'm just like, all right, maybe I might spend a little bit more time with the iPhone. But the main things going into the mini, and I know we've talked about this before, but the the just really kind of hit home now that I've spent time with it. The main things I was really concerned about was what are the compromises of going with the smaller phone, right? So right. 5G, the exact same support, which arguably might be a little overkill with the small battery on the 12 mini, but still, it's nice that you're not really losing anything on that side. And of course, none of the iPhones this year have higher refresh rate, which is something that I actually really feel like the Pro phones are missing. I'm actually kind of okay with that on the mini, but like the fact that even like the big Pro Max is running at 60 hertz it's a shame. feels, yeah, like... 
I get it, and I will be very surprised if they don't have high refresh rate next year because I feel like that boat is really going to be way down, <laughs> way mm-hmm. down if they don't even do it next year. But because the 12 line is so similar with performance and pretty much everything across the board, there, to me, are very few compromises with the Mini, right? The performance is great. I did actually a speed test, and I was impressed that the Mini was very, very close to the performance of the Pro Max. It was only in like... 20 minutes into a speed test and a couple points in Geekbench that I see any difference at all. And also the camera. I'm really happy with the mini camera. So the Pro Max actually in a couple of my tests actually was slightly worse. So Hmm. the autofocus was a bit of a problem. And I think that's just because it's a bigger sensor, right? We've seen this Mm -hmm. on a lot of the bigger sensor phones on Android, right? The bigger sensor just means there's a lot more depth of field to work with and it's harder to kind of nail it down Whereas when you're working with a smaller sensor like on the 12 and the 12 mini, everything's uh, usually kind of in focus anyway. So they're like minor differences. I'm actually curious, have you shot much video and specifically have you looked at like the stabilization on the Pro Max? Like how do you feel about that if you've tried it so far? I have have no, I've not done enough testing of that by any stretch of the imagination yet. Um, So it's interesting. So one of the main advantages of the Pro Max is that it has sensor shift stabilization, which is totally yep. different than what we've had previously because pretty much all of the or the the last few years of iPhones have had optical image stabilization through the lens, right? So you know, kind of as your hand naturally moves or whatever the case is, the element in the lens will kind of move in the opposite way to compensate to kind of keep things stable. And of course, there's a lot of digital stabilization as well, right? And generally speaking, iPhones have been completely classlating in video. Surprise, surprise, right? It's been like this for a while. I was curious to find out about the 12 Pro Max because it has a very different way of doing it. As opposed to moving the lens, they're actually moving the sensor behind the lens to compensate, which is the way that a lot of more pro cameras like our Sony A7s, for example, that's the way that they do the stabilization. However, it actually is not quite as straightforward as that because supposedly the performance is the same. You actually don't get an advantage of instabilization theoretically, again, theoretically on the Pro Max. It is much more so about the ability to have the same level of performance and stabilization just with that larger lens. Because essentially, the, because the lens is just physically bigger on the Pro Max, from what I've been told, it actually doesn't have, like it's harder to move a bigger chunk of glass to get that same level of performance. So it seemed like the easier way to do it was to actually stabilize the sensor, which is really cool. But I guess going into it, the Pro Max doesn't necessarily have some huge stabilization advantage. They just go about getting to the same place in different ways. Right. That makes sense. And because again, it's like it's not necessarily then that you're going to be much more stabilized video, but it means you could in theory have better quality video in certain instances with the same amount of stabilization. That if they would have wanted to give you the better quality lenses, um, you would have ended up with worse stabilization. Exactly, which is really interesting. I didn't think about that, but it's cool to see that you don't have those compromises. Yeah, it's interesting because it's not that they put the stabilization in to make the stabilization better. It was they had to do it this way to improve the lens system overall. Exactly. It was a full upgrade across the board, right? So it's a very interesting approach. What I will say is like, again, the the Max has the same as the other phones here is the the HDR video just looks fantastic to play back because it lights the screen up so bright. You know, it really like, it really does do a great job of making video look better. J- just pure, the HDR will just always make it look better. And I think it looks fantastic. 
Yeah. The only thing I can say about it, and this is very much like an early adopter kind of issue, it's kind of hard to deal with that footage, right? So, in fact, actually, yeah. I believe last night Final Cut got an update to support Apple Silicon, and I believe that's supposed to be the update that supports it. I haven't actually tried it yet, but I believe that's the update that's supposed to just natively handle the HDR footage. I will say in my review process of these phones, it has been a bit of a nightmare to try to deal with this HDR because it just simply is very – like you almost kind of have to do a lot of manual sort of correction and sort of clamping down the color space to get it into a usable state for Twitter or for a YouTube video or whatever. So I will say that uh, it's nice and it will be a lot smoother, I think, in the coming months as there's Mm -hmm. more support because if you just throw an HDR video at any editor and it's just going to freak out and go, oh my God, this is the brightest thing in the world. It's it's not going to work. But I think that's an easy problem that will be solved. I will just say on that, Look, I completely understand that this is an issue. This isn't this isn't a problem. Like no. okay, so this is one of those situations where if you listen to what people who review these things professionally tell you and just take that as a fact, you end up with maybe not the full picture. Mm-hmm. Listeners out there, I, I ask you, how many of you are taking these photos and videos, or especially the videos we talk about in this context, and doing anything other than watching them on your devices? Yeah. Right. Like, because that's for me. I don't take video on my phone and do anything other with it than watch it on my phone or send it to somebody else's phone. Like, yes, if you are using that video and trying to turn it into a YouTube video, you're going to come into some issues. But otherwise, it's never going to be a problem for you. Um, which is like, so I understand that these issues are there, but for pretty much every user, yeah, there is no downside to to it because you know Apple do a good job. But they've done with their other stuff in the past too. Of it, they detect if you're sending it somewhere exactly. else, they will convert the video for you on the fly, so it's not going to be HDR. But that's not going to be the case if you're like taking that file off the phone to a Mac mm-hmm. and then trying to put it into Final Cut. Like that's not going to work. For, I'm never gonna not never say never, but with the type <laughs> of stuff that I use my phone for, it's not gonna be a problem for me. You know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, and I will say that this is such an edge case. It's just like if you're making a camera comparison, right, or you're trying to get that max quality out, it's a little bit difficult. But like you're right, even something as simple as like you airdrop it to another device, the phone will very quickly realize, oh, am I sending the 10 bit HDR? Am I sending the 10 bit? Am I sending mm-hmm. the 8 bit? Like whatever I need to do, the phone can really quickly handle that, transcode it, and send it over on the fly. So yeah, it's. It's certainly a very nice thing to have. And again, with these updates, I think that you'll be able to actually use this video for, you know, quote unquote, professional use, right? I'm excited to get that high quality 10-bit footage off of the phone in a smooth way, drop it into my timeline. I mean, look, I don't think it's a surprise to most people that we use a lot of iPhones in production, right? We shoot, I would say, 90% of our thumbnails on iPhone on still with the still side of things where Pro Raw is going to be helpful. And I would say... Every second or third video has a good chunk of it that's shot on iPhone, right? Mm -hmm. It's like the iPhone has gotten good enough where we can easily mix it with a lot of our much more professional cameras depending on the the scenario. And it works, right? It's just there. It's a full recording solution in your pocket. And that's why I'm excited for the mini because it's so tiny. Having that kind of like video capability is great. And especially as I'm able to use more of these high-end modes like the HDR, specifically the 10-bit, which has so much data there. I'm very excited. You know something that I've got to say just about this whole, just kind of wrap up the whole thought on the 12. Have we hit a point where Apple's pricing has gone from like, oh my God, it's so expensive to actually kind of reasonable? 
they haven't lowered the prices of these phones, but everyone has caught up and exceeded to the point where I'm looking at an $1,100 Pro Max and thinking, yeah, that's a pretty good deal. Well, but the, well, that's that's the Apple haven't changed, just the context that surrounds it. Yeah, everyone's changed. flown by, right? I mean, remember the remember the reaction when people said that the iPhone 10 is going to cost a thousand dollars? Yeah, everyone lost it. It was like, yeah. what are you talking about? And then everyone goes, oh yeah, thousand. We're going to charge fourteen hundred. We're going to charge two thousand. Everyone's like, eleven hundred. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I mean, like in these phones these days, right? There's a reason they cost an amount of money to do because they're becoming more and more expensive to make over time. It's why the whole industry is going this way. Um, but it is nice to see that they're not extending it so far. And as we talk about in the show a lot, there are a lot of companies that see it as an opportunity, including Google, to get in under those prices now. So even yeah. though the industry, the top end of the industry is going up, it has created an opportunity that I'm very pleased that a lot of companies have jumped on, which is to create stuff that is cheaper, um, that's modern and good. So, like, yeah, I agree with you. Like, now it feels like that the market is stabilized around Apple's pricing for what flagships are. Um, but it's good that that's not all it is because that would be not good. Mike, if I could be a fly on the wall inside the Apple campus right now, you've got to imagine they're looking at Samsung charging $1,300, $1,400 for their Ultra Line, $1,500 for the Z Flip. $2,000 for the Fold. Do you consider making an ultra-premium iPhone? What does that look like? You've got to imagine that... They- it's nothing like what we have now. Because, like, the, you the think Pro so? Max... The Pro Max is the ultra-premium iPhone. For now. Right? Well, just because that's that's the best they can do with what they have. Mm. But, but I think <sighs> the only way they go further than this is stuff that we don't have right now. You know, mm. I'm just I just think about Apple as a company who have clearly dominated the high end. They get so much of their sort of market share from the halo effect of the Mac Pro bringing up the whole Mac just because people know that they have a powerful computer they can upgrade to or, you know, selling a hugely expensive iPad Pro maxed out like, like the halo effect is so real with Apple. I just look at the iPhone and. For so long, the iPhone was one of, if not the most expensive phone out. But now that that is no longer remotely the case, I just think like if they made a $2,000 iPhone, people would buy it. But imagine what would they do if they had that much more money to play with, right? Is it a different form factor? Is it some crazy like detachable camera? Like I just imagine all these like wild, crazy ideas that you know, you know that they've got like lurking in Johnny Ives old lab or something that like, I don't know. I just think about it and go, I'm very curious to see one, two years from now, what that next level up iPhone is. It might not be the same. It might just be Pro Max XXL, but I don't know. I just, I look at that price and I think that there's got to be something there. But hey, well, for now, they're pretty pretty reasonable. I mean, you assume that, that's, you know, they have prototype foldable devices somewhere inside of that campus. Mm-hmm. Like They've that's, to, that's right? the next step. But I think for Apple we're still some years away for them even beginning to to step foot in that kind of market. This episode is brought to you by Pingdom from SolarWinds. While you've been listening to the show, how would you know if your website had gone down? Would you know if customers couldn't click that buy now button or access your most recent content? You might stumble across the problem by luck. Someone might email you, but that's no good. You want a reliable system, something that's going to tell you when everything's running great on your website and more importantly, when it isn't, 
That's why you need Pingdom. Pingdom detects more than 400,000 outages every day across the web. That is over 13 million a month. Pingdom help keep your sites and the sites that you love online. It doesn't matter how big a company is, whether it's just one of you, maybe it's your startup, maybe you're a Fortune 500 company. If you have something online, you want people to be able to access it. So if something bad happens, you want to know. And that is why you need alerts about critical website issues. Pingdom will let you customize how you're alerted and who is alerted depending on the severity of the outage so you can have the right person on call to fix it. Plus, they'll track and analyze your website's load time so you can see what's affecting user experience allowing you to make tweaks and optimizations. If you have a site of any size, you need Pingdom. They have a no-fuss approach to get started. All you need to do is give them the URL that you want to monitor, and they'll take care of everything else. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM, and you can get a 14-day free trial with no credit card required. And when you use the code TESTDRIVERS when you sign up, uh, put that in at the checkout, you'll get a huge 30% off your first invoice. That's pingdom.com slash RelayFM, and the code TESTDRIVERS at checkout for 30% of your first invoice. Our thanks to Pingdom from Solar Winds for their support of this show and Relay FM. Oh boy, it happened. <laughs> Apple Silicon in a Mac. We can now call it what it is the M1 chip. When we're recording this, uh, neither me or Austin have them. We'll probably have devices kind of around the time the show publishes. Um, but there's, you know, some benchmarks creeping out and also we know what Apple have told us and what they've, they've spoken uh, about in the, um, in, in all the media that they've been doing and in interviews and stuff like that. Effectively, the M1 chip is Apple's first foray into making their own chip for a Mac. Depending on what machine it's in, you're looking for between two to five times performance gains on CPU or GPU from the machines that they are, uh, replacing, my favorite statistic to kind of put some of this into context. So the the CPU itself is broken down. It's an eight-core CPU, and it's broken down into two sets of four. Apple have been doing this on their iPhones and iPads for a while. They have four uh, high-performance cores and four efficiency cores. So when you're doing something intensive, you fire up the high-performance cores. Most of the time, your machine will be running from the efficiency cores. This allows them to give you great battery life and also to give you the performance when you need it. It's a clever design. But my favorite statistic from the presentation is that the four efficiency cores, so the slower cores in this eight-core GPU, just those four efficiency cores are faster than the Intel chip in the previous MacBook Air. <laughs> what a right? flex, man. What a flex. It is the big... That was... You could tell like it's their favorite stat as well because they didn't do a lot of like Intel bashing in the presentation, but this was... Mm-hmm. You know, because you can say like two to five times faster across the whole, but this was like a very specific, like the dual core processor that's in the MacBook Air. And we destroy it with our efficiency cores. Oof. Uh, benchmarks are also starting to come out, which is basically pegging this these chips in the MacBook Air, the 13 inch MacBook Pro, and the Mac Mini. Um, basically, these are faster than all of the laptops that Apple currently sell with Intel chips in them rivaling some of the desktop chips and this is in the the m1 chip is very much apple's entry level chip it's in a cheaper mac mini so they've created a cheaper mac mini which is silver while the other mac mini is space gray it's an interesting little detail there 
the entry level MacBook Pro. They still have a bunch of Intel MacBook Pros available, and they've replaced all the MacBook Airs of this because the MacBook Air is the entry level laptop. And even and they've also in the MacBook Air taken the fan out, and it's still performing at the level that it's performing at. I mean. My word, Austin, these things look <laughs> bananas. Now, I am someone who's very much, very heavy in the Apple camp, right? So for me, like whatever they're doing here is like, it is that two to five times f- faster performance on anything I'm using regularly. As someone who also focuses a lot on what's happening in the PC space, what is your read on what Apple has announced? This is, I think, the biggest shot across the Intel AMD, but specifically on the Intel side, I've ever seen. I think you look at the way that AMD has kind of caught up in a big way, but then you look at Apple. Like, look, this is none of this is actually that surprising. If you look, actually, there's an excellent Anantech article we'll have in the in the show notes that kind of breaks down. Uh, they specifically look at the A14 inside the new iPhone 12s, but that is very much the base for the M1. So similar to what we've seen with like the A12X, you know, being just a bigger version, it very much seems like the M1 is kind of like just a bigger version of what we already have in the iPhone. But looking at some of the the numbers and seeing how there's one specific chart where over the last handful of years, every single year, the iPhone and the the SOC has gone up, 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 up in pretty much a straight line, right? Whereas everything else is kind of like, oh, 5%, 10%, 15%. Like literally it went from being like a few years ago, like half or less the performance of the best Intel CPUs out there to at least on a single thread basis, beating them out, right? And that mm-hmm. is wild to me. And that, to be fair, is a five watt iPhone chip that they're comparing to high-end laptop chips on the Intel side. Or of course, like things like Ryzen, what they're able to do with tons and tons of power. It is mind-blowing, right? And I think that that's a great article, too. If you really want to get into the technical details of explaining how they're able to get to this performance, right? Because it's not necessarily like, oh, they're running this thing at 6 gigahertz or whatever. Mm -hmm. They have built a massive, wide, very high-performing core. And the entire CPU just feels like it's a full multiple generations ahead of what anyone else is doing between the way that they're handling the memory, the, between the, the way they handle the cache, the unified memory architecture where the CPU and GPU can all pull from the same pool. Of course, you also have things like the neural engine, which I, mean, I think is almost kind of like a bonus at this point. Like this thing is nuts. Now, yep. am I going to say that every single one of the benchmarks and specifically the slides that they displayed at the event are particularly representative? No, I think every time you give me a chart without any kind of guidance, if you say PC laptop chip and no numbers or lines like that, I cannot get down with, especially when you smooth out those curves to be perfect. Like those charts, I will say not well done. Well, because it's not in their interest to do it though, right? But I think the thing about those charts is those charts are very vague and they look pretty and that's what they're doing. But I think it's very clear at this point that they're not lying. Right, because like yeah. when you look at the like a sixteen eighty seven single core and seventy four thirty seventy four thirty three multi core score in Geekbench five, there's a not a lot you can compare that to. I mean, that makes the iMac Pro look a little jealous. Yes, so like you know, you start looking at like Geekbench five scores, and you know, really the only stuff that's higher than it is serious desktop CPU stuff. Mm-hmm. which is running at like a an order of magnitude higher levels of power. Right? Yep. That's just crazy town. So mm-hmm. yeah, no, I, I will say, look, I have no doubt that 
while if it were me, I would probably have liked to see a little bit more granularity versus we're faster than 98% of mm-hmm. PCs. Like there's a lot of kind of hyperbole there. Yeah, because that 2% is big, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, like as in like the, the, that that 2%, like, yeah, you're faster than 98%, but that 2% is really powerful, right? So yeah, it's like- and then, <laughs> 98, I mean, what are 70% of those computers like, two-year-old HP streams with, like, mm-hmm. $50 specs. We're like, ah, look, I, I can put that aside for a minute. I know that's why a lot of people kind of latched on. But if you just ignore that and you talk about the actual numbers and the specs that they gave, you look at the benchmarks, you just look at your common sense based on how things have tracked over the years. Now that these chips have been unleashed to have their full potential in macOS, because, look, as much as I love a powerful iPhone – the iPhones have not really taken full advantage of the chips for a while. Even the iPad, I think, does a decent job, but like they they don't. The headroom is so massive, in in for what the phones and what the tasks people put these things through. It's like yeah, you can if you want to push these things, but you're not doing it mm-hmm. on a Mac. You will be pushing them more often. Absolutely right. I mean. I don't ever think about, am I hitting 100% CPU usage on the iPad, right? I don't think 90% of the apps on the iPad would even do that if I tried, right? Maybe I'm rendering a video, but even then, right? But I know on the Mac that when I'm using it, it's still, you know, that old Steve Jobs analogy of it's like a truck, right? I mean, you're using it for its full potential of I'm rendering video, I'm transcoding stuff, I'm dealing with these huge, like, data sets and whatnot, right? And I think that that's where we're really seeing the advantages of this M1 chip. Is it going to be technically 100 times better or two times better or five times better, whatever the the actual score is, compared to a lot of these other Intel machines? I'm not completely convinced. I don't think it's necessarily going to be five Mm. times better graphics performance or whatever the case is. I think some of those numbers were a little bit overcooked. But even if you double the performance, that's crazy. If you just double the performance, that is a massive massive step forward when we're used to in the pc space seeing single digit performance increases every year right five percent oh it's pretty good ten percent that's great i mean we just talked about the, all the ryzen stuff right that was a huge deal that they were into the single digits barely of increased performance right i mean those are huge huge numbers and when you compare that to doubling and tripling the performance that's Ridiculous. I, I can't even, I, I don't think in my lifetime I've ever seen this kind of performance leap. Now, grain of salt alert, guess what? We haven't actually spent enough time. We haven't spent our own benchmarks and we haven't lived with these mm-hmm. things. And there will absolutely be. And again, because it's like Geekbench is, is great, but nobody's job is Geekbench, right? Yep. Like, yep. And again, it's like, so it can mean plus or minus, right? Like if you are editing video can't how much faster will final cut work for you exactly you know right and like not even just compared to final cut but maybe you work in davinci uh on a pc how much faster is davinci gonna run on apple silicon right Absolutely. so like these are where the real that's where the real benchmarks are like it's just interesting to see what the raw power is but again it's like Geekbench scores are showing all of these three computers seemingly running at the same score. Well, there is going to be thermal throttling that Geekbench Mm -hmm. is not going to give you because otherwise they wouldn't have even made this MacBook Pro 
because then the MacBook Pro and the MacBook Air from a performance standpoint are exactly the same. But they chose mm-hmm. to make the MacBook Pro with the same chip, but they put a fan in it. So it yeah. will sustain, right? So this is where, you know, once we get these in and over the next few weeks start to test them, that's where it's going to be really interesting. I do want to ask you a quick question though because I need to ask it and I don't want to forget it. Yeah. This is obviously step one and Apple are on a two-year plan and eventually we're going to see some kind of Apple Silicon chip in the Mac Pro. Do you think there is a possibility Apple will have the best performing processor on the market? Yes. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, I, okay. I will be surprised if that's not the case. So they, uh, they they said a lot in that, right? And I mean, it was a very dense presentation. But one of the things that was sort of one of the big takeaways for me is that they have the world's highest performing CPU core, right? And if you read that Anantech article and when they break it down, and again, we're talking about the iPhone version, right? The M1 version is certainly, it seems to be clocked 10% higher at least on a single core basis. If you look at what you're able to get out of one of these cores, it -hmm. is head and shoulders above anything else on the market, right? And that's not even counting like for clock speed, right? Where we're looking at, again, the low-end versions of these things in a Mac Mini, right? With like one little fan. You imagine what this would look like in a Mac Pro where you load up 28 cores, right? There's just some obscenely huge number. It's going to be mega, right? I mean... Basically, right now, the way I look at it, the M1 is similar to what we would have gotten as an A14X, right? And we may even still see that version of the chip uh, ship in something like an iPad Pro, right? But like, it's the same sort of template. The main difference here is that it has been unleashed not only by being able to run on macOS, but also getting the idea that you have, you know, active cooling. You have more than a handful of watts of TDP, whereas most laptops are 15, 28, 45 watts to play with. I imagine that if they get an M1X or the M2 or whatever the case is, but the higher-end version that will go into something like a 16-inch MacBook, maybe even something like a high-end 13-inch. You look at something like the iMac. like You look at the higher-end version of this chip, give it another 40 watts of TDP, build a bigger GPU, and this thing is going to destroy. I, I'm impressed, man. I'm very impressed. It's just kind of cool to see them do it. They don't yeah, need finally. to. They don't finally. need to, right? Like... Apple's machines perform perfectly well for what we expect, you know? And and as you were saying, like these, I mean, we were talking about this with the graphics cards, right? Because it's been a similar kind of deal with NVIDIA and, and AMD creating these graphics cards that are like these huge jumps and like, what is it going to enable? What is What are we going to be able to do with our computers when they're four times faster next year? <sighs> I mean, I right? will say for me... I am actually, I'm going to jump onto this now. I'm not even waiting until next year. So yeah. my current setup is I use an 11-inch iPad Pro, which I know we've discussed many times, yep. as my sort of my portable laptop. It's got LTE. It's what I kind of use to write the show notes and do a lot of my sort of admin tasks. And then I have a 16-inch MacBook, which generally lives either at home or on my desk at work. And I have it plugged into a USB-C, either USB-C or Thunderbolt display, right? That's my setup at the moment. I have already committed. I've already ordered myself a maxed out 13-inch MacBook Pro. uh, And that is going to be, I'm going to give it a real shot of being my everything machine, right? I want to try to edit on that. I'm very excited. We actually have, so we've been using the new Sony A7S, which is very video-focused kind of workflow, of course. But we've been using the new Sony A7S III. Phenomenal camera. It's great. But it shoots a high bit rate, uh, 10-bit H265, right? So 
it's a codec which is great for being very compressed and you've got a lot of great data, but the 16-inch MacBook Pro, I have the maxed out version, it kind of chugs, right? It, I can edit it, but as soon as I add any effects, as soon as I get more of a complicated timeline, it kind of falls down. And on the flip side, I look at like what Jonathan Morrison is doing where he's editing that same footage that's making my 16-inch MacBook cry on his iPhone and it's exporting mm. quickly and it's running smoothly. If I get that kind of performance out of any of these MacBooks, but specifically the 13-inch Pro, which seems like kind of the best sort of all-around workflow, I mean, dude, that, that might be it, right? I might just live that 13-inch MacBook life for a while. Yeah, I also have a MacBook Pro on the way and, and I'm going to be doing all of my editing on that machine when it arrives to see like how fast can I export the audio? How fast can I convert stuff? Like I'm, and one of the benefits I have is a lot of my tools will run native to M1. Same. Uh, but it's even seeming like applications that run in translation in Rosetta 2, they're still working faster than they were on <laughs> Intel, even though they're not native to the platform. And part of that reason that Apple is saying is like applications that use the frameworks that Apple provide will get the benefit, you know, because Apple, the, 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 the system provided frameworks and the system provided tools will be running at full speed, even if some of the other stuff isn't. Yeah. And I think that's going to be one of the big questions, because like I totally expect there to be you know speed bumps. It's not going to be a perfect transition. But I do think about the apps like Photoshop, right? So Photoshop is not supported on Apple Silicon yet. So it is running in the sort of the Intel version in the back compat, which seems, I mean, we obviously haven't tried it yet, but it seems like it'll probably be fine. I think about specifically a lot of my workflow because I do work inside Final Cut, which has been fully optimized, but things like how are my plugins going to run? How is something like my red plugin, which is something which is obviously very CPU intensive and something that makes any of the machines we have in the office struggle running completely natively, how is that going to work under Rosetta, right? I assume it seems like it will be okay, but will I be able to edit 7K and 8K red raw footage in the same way that I was able to before, right? There are certainly, I think, going to be some spots where, depending on the workload, you may have maybe not a huge performance loss compared to last generation, but I don't think you're going to see these huge performance. I think a lot of that 2X, 3X performance is just going to be soaked up by trying to run these things in backwards compatibility mode. But if I can do everything that I was doing before, at least relatively well, and a lot of things much better, I mean, come on, how can you argue with that? I mean, sure, there's like little things to complain about, but I don't, do you think that you can fully switch over to Apple Silicon? Like, are, are there any tools or any concerns you have about maybe like not having as many Thunderbolt ports or whatever that could cause a problem for you right now? My only issue right now is moving to Big Sur. Mm, yeah. Because some of the audio tools that I use aren't running completely well. The, com the compatibility with Big Sur is a little shaky for some tools that I use. So mm -hmm. I would say in a few months' time, I would be comfortable moving my entire workflow to Apple Silicon. But mm -hmm. like for right now, I will record the audio on my iMac Pro running Catalina and then take that audio and do the production work. And I'm com very comfortable doing the production work um, on Big Sur and Apple Silicon because okay. you know my main tool is Logic, which Apple makes. So I'm I'm perfectly happy with that. But I'm going to give it a little bit more time before I would trust the uh, recording to Big Sur, <laughs> which is always very normal for me. Like I, I, you know, I only upgraded to Catalina a couple of weeks ago on my iMac Pro. Oh really? Um, yeah, I, with my machine that I am recording on, my production machine. I really don't want to subject it to potential bugs in the system. 
And there's always stuff that can affect with USB audio. It always seems to be a bit shaky. So I'll wait a long time. I only upgraded to Catalina because there was some uh, Catalyst apps that I wanted to try uh, because oh, nice. I was used to them on my Mac Mini. And then when I came, when I used my iMac at home, I didn't have them available. So I, I that's why I upgraded. Otherwise, I wouldn't have changed this machine from High Sierra, I think it was on before that. So, but, <laughs> I mean, you know, I can't say anything. I'm uh, recording on a MacBook Pro running Mojave right now. So yeah. <laughs> there is a certain... Uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it type of thing Two machines that are more dedicated to producing content. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, it's like, I always wait a long time before updating any of the tools that I use just to make sure that something didn't go wrong and they had to change, uh, yeah. tack. But you know, the thing is that the, the Apple Silicon M1 chips, uh, the machines, the, the, the Mac mini, the MacBook air and the MacBook pro, they ship with Big Sur and they won't run anything else. Um, so you kind of have to commit to it, but, I'm not going to uh, move everything over um, completely. I'm not going to entrust it with everything, but I will be doing all of the stuff that isn't critical in that if it's lost, it can't be refound. Like if I lost an edit, I can redo the edit. Mm-hmm. If I lose the recording, it's that you can't redo that the same. You know? Yeah, of course. So, you know, I, I won't be going there, but I will be, I'm going to try it out for everything else. And I'm going to do, try and do what you're doing, especially that these apps, uh, these machines run iOS apps. I'm going to try and use my Apple Silicon Mac for everything for a bit and see what that's like. Nice. So you're not concerned about like only having the two uh, Thunderbolt ports as opposed to four, nah. like that's not going to cause any problems or 16 no. gigs of RAM is fine. Do you, cause I know you spend so much time, so many audio effects and stuff. I know eat up RAM. Is that going to be a problem for you? I don't know yet. Okay. Right. Cause it's like, how comparable is 16 gigabytes of unified memory to 16 gigabytes of RAM? Uh, I would say it's going to be roughly comparable to running an Intel integrated graphic because I mean, when you look at, uh, like, say, like the MacBook Pro I'm recording on right now, it's a 13-inch. It uses integrated graphics. That 8 gigs of RAM that's on here is being split up by the CPU and the GPU, right? So not yeah. all of that is necessarily addressable. Same thing on AMD. And, like, I mean, anytime you have integrated graphics, you have to share that. So I would assume, I mean, apps may be a different size um, when they're compiled for Apple Silicon. They may take a different memory footprint. But I would assume it's going to be broadly comparable that if you're able to work inside 16 gigs now you'll probably be able to do it in the future but i don't know i mean i guess we'll have to see i will say that i usually edit on a 32 gig ram machine i don't think i will have any problems on 16 but i do find myself pretty regularly in like the 20 25 gigs of ram used when i'm in like a big edit so we'll see if there's any slowdown there but i'm not personally too concerned about it no i'm not I mean, and we'll see, right? Like my uh, iMac Pro that I'm sitting in front of has 64 gigabytes of RAM. Mm-hmm. And that's very different, right? Like I have an eight-core Intel Xeon, right? Where I have 64 gigabytes of RAM. All right, let's see. All right, let's see what you got, right? I'm going to sit side by side and I'm going to press export on a two and a half hour episode of Cortex with over 1,500 cuts on it. <laughs> Let's see what happens, right? Show me what you got, right? And I'm really excited to see what happens. 
Here comes the ultimate Mike Hurley Apple Silicon test. Stay tuned. Uh, this this is genuinely like the only time that I really feel like I can genuinely benchmark stuff. <laughs> I feel like I can actually do it and, and I'm going to see what happens. I'm very excited. Well, so I guess stay tuned. We'll have the ultimate benchmarking duel of Apple Silicon coming soon.